0: Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is your old friend, Carl Franklin. I'm your new friend, Richard Campbell. Well, I'm not that new. Yeah, I think you're older than me, aren't you? By a week or two? Yeah, about a couple of weeks, right? July versus August, but otherwise... How's it going up there in Vancouverish, Canada? Hey, we got a little dust in the snow last night, which is pretty rare. Like, there's been lots of rain, so the mountains are full of snow, which is where snow should stay. But yeah, it's snuck down in the city today, and it's one of those things where... You know, we don't get snow in the city very often, so we're not—we don't respond particularly quickly to it. So it's—it's it's one of those mornings where it's like you should stay indoors. <laughs> like, yeah, it's right. Not pretty. The roads are not pretty. I just f- spilled my first
1: bag of rock salt out in the driveway. There you go. Yeah, we here got in that state pummeled yesterday.
0: Oh, and you know, last week I was talking about snow. Yeah, yeah. more snow. More snow. Well, I figured I wasn't getting any snow this year because I got a, a snow blower for Christmas. Yeah. And that's the rule, right? If you get equipped for snow, you don't get any snow. But you
1: And know, you know the other rule know. of snow blowers? What's that? The snow that falls is always deeper and icier than your little snow blower can handle.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, right now, I think we're still at the there's not enough snow to pull out the blower stage, but. You know, we'll figure it out. It's enough snow to make mess of everybody who didn't put snow tires on.
1: And I'm looking
0: at the weather forecast for this week because this is uh, the 8th of February. You know, we're publishing at the beginning of March, so time shifting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm looking at the, the weather forecast for this week and four days of snow. There we go. I don't know how much, but yeah, we have a lot of snow.
0: Hey, you know what? The far, there was a farmer's market on the weekend. I loaded up, we loaded up the fridge and freezer. We can hunker down here for a month if we have to.
1: Oh yeah. I got a, I got plenty of stuff in the freezer. You know, I saw this meme on Facebook. I think it was where, um, somebody built a snowman around a mailbox. Now I don't mean like a snowman. I kind of mean like a, You remember like Grimace from the, from McDonald's characters? He was just sort of like a pyramid. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It was that kind of shape. It was that kind of shape. Yeah. It was a pear shaped snowman with the mouth was the mailbox opening and it was open and
0: the eyes were like really angry looking. Uh oh. It was Your great snowman f- should not be that scary.
1: It was a great photo, but you know it's very snowbally snow. It's very dense, so I was actually thinking yeah. of going and turning my mailbox into
0: Grimace. <laughs> Our excellent pictures, please. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, I don't want to waste any more time. Steve Gordon is here. It's going to be a great show. But let's start it off right with a little thing we call Better New, a framework. Awesome. <laughs> Man, what do you got? You know, Microsoft Azure Cognitive
0: Services continues to blow my mind. It just keeps evolving, too, right? Like it's it's so much stuff we could almost just do a series on what's going on in there. Right.
1: I mean, when when they first came out with Azure AI and stuff, the only person who knew how to use it was Seth Juarez. Yes, because he had done that kind of stuff before, and we were all like, "Huh? I don't know anything about modeling and whatever." And then they started building these APIs that use their models and their built-in things and make it drop-dead simple for you to do stuff in AI. And the Anomaly Detector is a really good example of that. Oh. The Anomaly Detector API enables you to monitor and detect abnormalities in your time series data without having to know machine learning. Oh. The algorithms adapt by automatically identifying and applying the best-fitting models to your data – Regardless of industry, scenario, or data volume, using your time series data, the API determines boundaries for anomaly detection, expected values, and which data points are anomalies. I can think of so many things to use this for. How about not clip detection in audio, but, you know, like pops? Sometimes
0: you're... Yeah, all those spikes show up on the waveform.
1: Yeah, and that's right. And and you could just run your wave file data through this and it would find those
0: things theoretically. I haven't tried it. And yeah, take them out or but at least identify them for you. It, it, you know, you you see this in like sending an intern looking through log files, like just like you're naive to the data, but you look at the consistent patterns and find the inconsistencies. Right, right. The um I I remember
1: specifically when brother jay and i were recording the lifeboat to nowhere album and i think it was even the first one that we would sit and listen and listen and listen and listen and jay goes "Whoop! do you hear that and I'd be like no what he goes there's a little click there's a little click in the bass track i heard it and i I'd I'd go back and i go back and i'm like Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, there is that. Mm-hmm. Here it is right here. We just isolate it down and isolate it down and zoom, and zoom in and zoom in and zoom in on the waveform and there'd be this little thing. Right. Unbelievable. And I didn't even hear it at first. I mean, I heard some that Jay didn't Well, brother
0: heard. Jay is a cognitive service after all. He is a cognitive service. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's what I got. That's cool, man. Nice find. Learn it. Love the anomaly detector API. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Yeah, I figured we'd be all around this subject material, like the cognitive services and the search stuff and so forth. And I found uh, a great comment from show 1380. Now, that's one we did with Anthony Brown talking about uh, building an Azure search engine. and that's what That was with F-sharp, like a completely other approach right. to doing tolerant parsing and, and indexing and so forth. And Elasticsearch, which I know we're going to get into today, is another approach to all of that. And, uh, and that's what Mark Rousey uh, is talking about. So, Mark Rousey wrote this comment, admittedly, four years ago, because 1380 is from uh, it's November of 2016. Right. Uh, and he says, this show is a great, great intro into what goes into building a search engine. I'd love to hear a more in-depth look at what goes into building domain-specific search engines, possibly based on the popular Elasticsearch and solar engines. And topics could include on how to effectively parse lots of rich documents, make search relevant, provide a great user experience that makes users want to use your search engine. There's just so much to explore in this field. It's difficult to figure out what the best practices are. And what's cool is like, that was a great question in 2016. Yeah. In 2020, the answers that to are totally different again, and it's because of things like the anomaly detector and all the cognitive search tools we're getting now that right. we, we've been building a layer of abstraction that I think, in a lot of respects, is making search more and more trivial. We people are expecting great things from it. Like I think Gmail caused that, but they but we do just expect search to work, and I think we're headed towards getting better tooling to do that. Well, we're ha- We'll have that conversation. Yep, yep. So, Mark, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music Code is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Code by, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com dot or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read on the show. We'll send you a copy of Mr. Kofi. And
1: definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. And don't worry, we'll take out the anomalies.
0: Yeah. Did you hear that click? You heard that
1: click? I, I heard it. Oh, wait, rewind <laughs> that? Reverse it? Uh, Magnify? Yeah. Let's bring back our, our old friend, Steve Gordon. He is a plural site author and Microsoft MVP and a .NET software engineer. He works for Elastic, maintaining their .NET client libraries. Steve enjoys sharing his knowledge with the community through his blog on his YouTube channel and by presenting talks at user groups and conferences from his living room around the world. Uh, you can find Steve online at his blog, stevegordon.co.uk, and on Twitter at Steve J. Gordon. And I just want to clarify that when I said in his living room, I added that because we are still in the age of COVID for those anthropologists listening hundreds of years from now that's why i
0: said that yeah,
2: that, that bio did not age well <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh it's gonna well, and lockdown was pretty serious in the uk too how are things in your part of the world there steve
2: yeah it still is really um yeah we're still locked down um sort of suffering the effects i think of a bit bit too late on the uh the side of the government to react here but uh I think we're coming for it. Our numbers are, are slightly improved, so fingers crossed we'll see see the other side of it. On, on the positive side, yeah. the vaccine program's going quick, so that's that's something.
0: Yeah, I don't know that we're ever going to contain this with lockdowns. Ultimately, it's just going to get needles in enough arms that you don't need to contain it anymore. Yeah.
1: I uh, Now, we know you as a .NET guy. What got you into Elastic?
2: Uh, so. I first started with Elastic um, in my previous role. So when I was working for Magix, uh for the last three to four years, we were working on a new product uh, at the time, which was uh, an analytics engine, um, analytics and metrics system for our customers to use. And we based that at the time mm-hmm. on top of Elasticsearch because although mm. you hear the words Elasticsearch, you immediately think, oh, okay, search, full-text search maybe. But Elasticsearch is also really, really good for kind of metric ingestion, aggregation and and the kind of workloads that we wanted to throw at it so that's kind of where i first got into it and now i've been sort of you know interacting a little bit here and there with the, the the team at elastic sort of over those last four years before uh joining them in november
1: well the question what is Elasticsearch, is is valid because i've heard people talk about it as a database like you use it as a database you don't even need like a persistence just let search figured out is that still a thing or was it ever a thing
2: yeah to a degree i mean um elastic search is is really just a, a document database uh at its heart so it's um it's highly optimized towards the full text search scenarios it's built on top of uh, apache Lucene, uh so that provides the kind of the low level full text search part of it and then what Elasticsearch right. layers on top of that is it's kind of all the the server features that take full-text search, and make it highly available, uh, make it suitable to scale, manages all of the coordination, provides a, a query sort of domain-specific language over the top of all your data so you can get back at it. Um, and it's, it's kind of that whole piece over the top of it, really.
1: And I heard of Elasticsearch through the lens of uh, Amazon, AWS. That's where I first heard about it. But it, it isn't – is it or is it not an Amazon –
2: thing uh it's it's not it's uh it's its own thing uh created originally uh i think it was uh I'm trying to remember the date now uh i've done that on on some recent training but uh it's created quite a few years ago and it's kind of evolved over time yeah. it, it coming from an open source background it has been forked and amazon have a, a variant of it as well that they run um but our, our stuff is kind of uh
0: kind of the original piece if you will Oh, okay. So yeah, cause Lucene's been around a long time, right? But it's kind of a very Java centric, low level library. And w- it was in like 2010 or 2011 that we saw a last research built on top of it. To me, it seemed like one of the original examples of here is sort of the commercialization of open source. Like, cause Lucene's all open, completely open source. Like do what you want. There's this, the solar uh, search engine. Like there's a, there's sort of that apache approach to stuff and then Elasticsearch seemed more the kinder like it was sitting on top of that where this is easier to use and so forth oh you want a retail version we got a retail version like that mix of yeah you, you have a free and you can have and you can do pay as well
2: yeah exactly i think i think lucene itself is is extremely powerful but it it doesn't kind of gear itself to well what do i do if i want to have a a distributed system across multiple nodes that are coordinating together to handle search um, at scale. Um, and so that's what Elasticsearch brings you.
0: Yeah, and, and you think about that error. That era of the, the, the 20-aughts was really, that's the huge burst Hadoop and like all of this uh, dispersing compute load across multiple machines sort of map, uh, map reduce approach of spread it out, compute a bunch of it, roll it up. But make that easy because that stuff was hard.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, and the way it makes it really easy is it puts a, a REST API basically in front of everything. So your interaction with Elasticsearch right. is just through API calls to
1: REST endpoints. Um, oh, and there's a couple of tools also like elasticsearch.net and Nest, I guess, are the two official .NET clients.
2: Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the, the area of it that I'm sort of now focused on. And, we have these yeah, two clients that work together. So the Elasticsearch.net uh, NuGet package is kind of our, our low-level library. Um, mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. dealing with things like, you know, HTTP transport layer type stuff, how we map the API endpoints that exist in the server back down to kind of client code. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much the unopinionated dependency-free layer. And then Nest uh, sits as kind of a higher-level client over the top of that. And that gives you... Uh, strongly type request responses um, so if you've mm. you know if you've got types that you want to map to and from and store into elastic and then retrieve back it kind of can handle all of that mapping for you uh, we've got a couple of kind of different APIs that you might use to do that that I'm sure we can talk about but that's kind of wow. that's the level that most people will probably want to bring in so bring in the nest uh, client
1: uh, for elasticsearch and and then you can kind of get going very easily from there and should we really be thinking about this as a database? Or as a search tool or both? I mean, obviously, if you have a database, you want a search tool, but but it really is a, a data s- structure Yeah, uh, database, right?
2: You can use it as a sole data store. Um, and that's what we were doing on, on the product uh, that I was working on previously. It was the sole data store for all of the metrics. And we were storing about 18 million metrics a day into the system. Um,
1: Holy crap.
2: It it wasn't insignificant. We had, I think, 32, 35 nodes running uh, to to kind of handle the load. Um, And it it can scale at that
0: level. It can scale much beyond that, to be honest. Um, And when you say nodes, you're talking like virtual machines or separate hardware? What's the architecture for the Yeah, so in our case, it
2: was separate virtual machines. So we were, in that scenario, we were in a kind of self-managed mode where we've got the the license for sort of the... um, version that we needed but the support we needed and we are maintaining our own uh, virtual machines up in the cloud and and installing it and basically looking after it which works reasonably well but you know you end up you know as we found today that so much of this stuff you don't really want to be handling in businesses day to day so uh, one of the things that we have at elastic that's getting more and more popular is our cloud offering which is elastic cloud and that basically takes all of the management plane out of your hands and you just say i need to store you know this many gigabytes of, of data and you just essentially select a slider and, and we'll deploy a number of, you know, instances of Elasticsearch to handle that across uh, different availability zones as well.
0: Wow. Nice. so, they, yeah, if they don't want to run the stuff themselves, it's like, hey, the cloud's got the API, knock yourself out.
2: Yeah, I think more and more people are kind of moving, moving to these kind of fully managed solutions where you just kind of scale it up and down as you need it. I've been using it in my day-to-day work just to spin up, test clusters and you can, you know, run, run a few, uh, indexing commands, check things work and then spin it down when you're done. And that's, that's extremely convenient.
1: Wow. And it's, uh, I'm looking at the pricing. It's as low as $16 a month. Yep. That's a far cry from my SQL Server bills on Azure.
2: Definitely. Definitely. And <laughs> one of the things I like about the, the pricing model we have for it is it's kind of resource based. So, you could use Elasticsearch for you know search, but a lot of people use it for metrics and monitoring and logging. And a lot of those systems out there today right. charge you per agent. So if you've got 100 servers that you want to collect logs from, you're paying 100 times whatever the cost is. Whereas uh, that's not usually equivalent to actually necessarily how much data you know, those things are producing. And so we just charge for the the data actually stored. And it's a, you know it's more or less a slide bar right. on your end to say, okay, well I want to I want to store a bit more, so we'll spin up some more nodes for you under under the hood.
0: Wow. And, and and under the hood, what is the storage mechanism? Like, uh, can I think, am I thinking in terms of stuff like ACID compliance and so forth in terms of a data store?
2: Uh, I'm not sure. Totally. I think it's ACID compliant. That's a really good question that I should probably know. But uh, the, yeah. I mean, the stuff is sort of sent into the HTTP endpoint and is written down one of the things you're dealing with is we're not in relational world so we are storing kind of denormalized structures of data um right and so this is why you may or may not run it in combination with a traditional relational database by the side for certain other needs where relational is a better fit um but for this kind of scenario where we're talking about like search and, and we're going we're going beyond just like search bars on a website there's There's all kinds of search that we're talking about. So I know one of our customers is Uber, for example. So when you're you're looking for a ride on Uber, Elastic is the engine behind, you know, matching you to a nearby vehicle. And that's all geo-based search, really. Um, And sort of, yeah, distance analysis and that kind of stuff. Um, And so you've got all these kind of use cases where you might want to do that on one system. You might want the relational store for some of the, you know, more transactional type data that you have in your system. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, you, you can use Elastic as your kind of side system for the, the full text data that you might want to analyze or the geo data that you might want to search across.
0: Mm. Yeah. I've seen architectures where we have those transactional databases and Elasticsearch is the search, you know, facilitator, but is also effectively a cache for a bunch of that sort of recognizing that when someone searches, they're likely to search again in short order. And so you sort of build up a bunch of cache data so that their searches get more and more efficient until they're done and then odds are that stuff can be let go and then you repopulate yep. for a different search. Yeah.
2: And I mean, a lot of this stuff's done in memory so it's 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 very quick. Uh, the indexes are all in, sort of loaded into mm-hmm. memory um, and that's kind of part of the reason you need to scale it out, obviously, because the larger your, your active indexes are growing, the more kind of nodes you need with memory running on them. Um, and you can handle right. that by doing what we call sharding out as well. So at a conceptual level, you've got a cluster that's made up of one or more nodes. Within those nodes, you're going to have uh, indexes, indices, um, which are, are kind of your unit of storage that you want to, to use. So you probably have, you know, a logging indice um, and that kind of thing. And then those are split out into what we call shards. And those are the things that we can kind of place across those different nodes to give you both kind of in indexing time and search time optimizations as well as um kind of resiliency as well
1: wow it's amazing stuff i mean i had like i said i had heard of it but i never really uh never really looked into it what else can you tell us what are some of the other uh feature i'm because i'm looking at the feature list and it's huge a lot of these things i don't even understand so maybe we could dive into some of them
2: yeah there's there's all sorts of cool stuff that you can do with it um so one of the Kind of key things that I was using it for in our old job, as to say, was kind of metrics data that you want to uh, you want to not only search across, but then you want to kind of aggregate on various different um, dimensions and, and bring it together. And that's that's where it's extremely powerful, uh, which is why it's also really popular for use with uh, kind of distributed logging um, and APM collection of data, uh, which is probably you know one of one of the big use cases for many people today. Um, and on that front, we have a, you know, for .NET devs out there, we have an APM agent that you can plug into your .NET applications and you can start firing, you know, tracing and metric data straight into Elasticsearch uh, as it stands today. And then use one of the wow. other tools from the, the wider Elastic stack called Kibana, which is kind of our, our window into your data. So it's the UI visualization layer. And you can use that to build, you know, Reporting dashboards, real time monitoring, and you can also, you know, set up alerts and things in there against certain monitors that you want to, uh, trigger, you know, trigger activity based on that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that's an extremely powerful way to kind of take what is what could be, you know, millions or even billions of documents and kind of consolidate them down into, uh, something that you can actually work with and understand.
0: Yeah, it almost sounds like a stream engine in that sense, right? That I can have an expression that as it's, you know, processing data I can pick up on in that stream of that event. And then... And then yeah, act exactly.
2: On and, and one of the things that we've kind of got on our, our list at the moment is we want to really improve that ingest story as well. Um, so at mm-hmm. the moment, uh, we have, you know, you have mechanisms through the existing APIs to kind of do uh, bulk uh, indexing of data, but one of the things we want to make that really easy from Donate applications with kind of a, an ingest processor that you basically pump data into uh, what might be uh, channels, which we, I think, talked about in the performance show I did with you previously. So we've got this kind of concept of a channel, which is really just a kind of concurrent queue of data. You can write that data into into that right. channel and kind of forget about it and leave our ingest library to kind of read from the channel deal with kind of forming that into a sensible size request, shipping it up to the server, that kind of thing. Um, and that all integrates with uh, something we call Elastic Common Schema, which is really just a, a kind of specification that we've built that defines common fields that you might come across when doing kind of event data, like logging a metric. So rather than everyone having their own word for you know name or service type or that kind of thing, we can have this common schema that, you can apply to all of your ingestion of logs and metrics from all your other systems that means that you can really easily then search across those systems for kind of uh anything that kind of relates to one another
0: um yeah these the great glossary battles of data warehousing come to mind and i get shivers right uh, where i'm trying to give that overall view of an, of an organization and everybody's got a different definition for customer much less what you said Steve which is name yeah man the fights I've had over the word name Yeah, <laughs> what's, yeah, a, what's name? a
1: name that's right <laughs> that has to go into the names table and if you want a customer you got a customer record that looks at the names table Exactly. Yeah,
2: we, we don't want people having to figure that stuff out. So the the common schema is kind of our our yeah. way of trying to say, well, here's a bunch of things we see people needing to log often. Here's the recommended practices, and and that's not only how you actually name those things, but also like how you might want to map them down to Elasticsearch. So although Elasticsearch is schemaless in that you can throw any load of JSON at it, basically as your document you want to store, and we'll store that document. Um, to get the full power out of it, what you want to do is apply mappings to that. And that's how you really say, well, this field that comes into you, if you see it, I want you to treat it in this certain way. I want you to index it down and I want to be able to full text search over it. And I want you to analyze that text in a certain way. So, um, you know, we have to break down that big chunk of text that maybe say a blog post and try and find all of the the actual core words that really matter from a searching and ranking perspective so we can kind of process that through. Um, And so those mappings are kind of how you control that. And by default, we will infer a bunch of stuff, but you can provide much better guidance to us based on either using the common schema or your own
1: kind of mapping information. You talked about ingesting data, and that's usually the first thing that you do when you have existing data, you want to move into Elastic. Um, what is Kibana and how is that used? So Kibana is that UI layer,
2: basically. So you'll connect a Kibana instance over to your Elasticsearch cluster. Um, and from that point, you can start really refining down what you're looking at. So you, you can do raw queries against the data if you want to kind of explore your data sets. Um, but more often what you're going to be doing is, is starting to build up your dashboard. So if you've got, as we did, uh, data coming in from sort of, lots and lots of different servers in terms of log data you know we could look for high occurrences of uh, exception logging or error logging coming up in our systems and perhaps set up uh, kind of monitoring against that so that people can kind of be a bit more proactive in responding to it as opposed to the the typical thing is you go to the logs when you've had a problem and someone screamed at you what you want to be able to do is right. kind of see that stuff as it's happening fix it and then before the person even rings you up you say okay now that's solved uh you know we understand there was a blip over here and we correlated that down to these logs over there um and got the problem fixed and and that's where the the
1: visualization really gives you some power is it only logs that people are using this stuff for it looks like you know when you're ingesting um you're you're you're, you basically can pick logs or metrics or security data you know what about other data.
2: Yeah, th- those are extremely like common cases for kind of bulk ingestion. But you you could be storing anything you want into there. So, you know, if you th- imagine, you know, an Amazon that might want to store their order information so that they could easily query over what's happening in there and understand, you know, which products are most popular at a given time of day. Um, you could you could pump yeah. those orders in as documents into sort of a set of indexes um, and start to explore that data as well. And maybe you want to you know, run a sale and then see in real time, you know, are people responding to our our sale that we sent out to them? Um, So, yeah, I think logging comes to mind for most people because it's something they have to deal with. Right, sure. And full-text search really suits it. Um, But you can get really kind of quite creative with the stuff that you build on top of this. As I say, um, I guess other use cases that were really cool were NASA used it to analyze the Mars rover data, for example. Um, And you, You imagine the huge kind of data sets that you're pulling in from, from those kind of systems um, that you can then start
1: to explore and, and kind of interpret. Can you uh, use the Nest client or the low-level Elasticsearch.net uh, client tools to do ingestion?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So what we have today, you probably most likely use the Nest client kind of day-to-day. Um, and that is right. basically a full full set of like strongly typed libraries that uh, respond to all of the APIs that are available uh, kind of on the REST endpoints. And we give you right. kind of two syntaxes that you might want to work with. So we have what we call the object initializer syntax, where you're basically newing up a request, a strongly typed request and setting all the properties. And then you fire it off. Um, the more popular one is to use our fluent syntax, which a lot of people kind of like, I think, because it is simpler oh, yeah. and it also kind of mirrors a little more closely what you see in the, in the JSON, uh, domain specific language that we have at the querying end. So you can, you can build up yeah. your, Um, either the data that you want to post in through that or through more specifically through searching. Uh, You can build up all of your kind of conditions and queries and, and different matches that you want to do on the data inside that Nest client.
0: Nice. And folks, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message.
1: Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy application experience for your customers? With Raygun application performance monitoring, you've got all the information you need right at your fingertips to find and fix errors and performance problems across your tech stack down to the line of code. Raygun makes it easy to monitor the impact of your performance improvements, quickly identify and resolve issues, and see how your code performs in the hands of your customers, saving you time, money, and sanity. Visit Raygun.com and join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every day to deliver flawless experiences for their customers. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial.
0: And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey, man. And there's our friend Steve Gordon, back for a second show, moved over to Elastic, which, you know, what a cool place to work. And we're just kind of digging into all the goodness you know, thinking back to Elastic really was uh, the other open source stuff that wasn't all that .NET friendly go back five or six years ago. That's mm-hmm. one of the things that MS Open Tech focused on was trying to get a, a good library for, you know, keep yeah, up with .NET being able to access it. It's nice to see that Elastic Excel s- supports its own set of .NET libraries. How long has that been going on?
2: Uh, that has been going on for a number of years. Um, I think it's you know um, something we're trying to raise awareness of out there if people are kind of using .dot NET day to day. Yeah, um, and we've got a. I'm, I'm part of what it's called the clients team, and we have now. Um, I think there's eight different languages, really, or eight or nine different languages that we're supporting clients for now, um, with a view to kind of trying to make those well distinct for their own languages and frameworks, also reasonably comfortable if you start transitioning between them as well so that things aren't too different if you move over to uh the java client for example
0: mm. you know and we sort of casually spoke at the beginning about setting up nodes running it yourself or pushing it into the cloud and so forth but if just a few years ago that wouldn't be a, an easy thing to pull off from a vm perspective because i can't imagine you run the elastic services in windows it sounds like a Job for Linux containers.
2: Yeah, they, they typically run on Linux. I mean, you can spin this stuff up on Windows, but um, yeah. yeah, when we were running on... A- why would you? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> why, why pay the license when uh, when you really don't need it?
0: Yeah, and also just the, the size and shape. Like, this is a very specific type of VM that's really kind of doing one thing. Actually, I think it would almost make more sense for containers across the board. But uh, yeah, th- this is not what Windows servers were meant for. no.
2: No, you, you want as little overhead, um, from the OS as well, really. You just want all of the memory on that box to be sort yeah. of available for Elasticsearch to, to run its querying over the top of. I mean, you talk about Docker. One of really good example of you can spin this up in Docker. We have, um, Docker images. Um, and, and I use that mm-hmm. typically for sort of development time prototyping. So you kind of got two options. You could go to the cloud if you want and spin up a temporary cluster on the cloud. Um, or if you just want to do some sort of really right. quick testing, then I always have a kind of a Docker Compose file sitting nearby that I can spin up both a, a single node of Elasticsearch plus the Kibana UI on top of it. Um, and that's so simple to do now with with the Docker technology. You spin it up, uh, use it for a short while, and then close it all down when you're done. Uh, it's a really nice way to kind of get developing with this with with no overhead. It's completely free to to kind of run Elasticsearch with the kind of basic license on there. Um, and all of the kind of core features.
0: Yeah, perfect for dev work. And then architecturally or fundamentally, you're still the same when you go to production. It's just you've got different implements on the back end.
2: That's it. It's, it's really just a matter of scale at that stage and, and kind of how much resilience you want to build in um, across your, your mm-hmm.
0: cluster. Yeah, exciting. Wow. Mind blown. Now, there is a free tier to Elasticsearch, right? Like I can just go started with this. I don't have to pay a thing. Why do I want to pay at all?
2: Cool. Um, well, free, free tier. Yeah. That will get you going in a lot of areas, to be honest. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what you get when you start moving up the levels is, is one, you get support, which is, you know, as you start to scale right. this stuff up and get really large clusters and you've got a lot of going on in there. Um, it, you know, support can be obviously quite crucial, uh, to many businesses just to make sure that they've got
0: some kind of continuity of service for what they're offering did you did you get there at magdex where it's like okay i've been hacking away at this now i need to talk to somebody who's scaled this before
2: exactly yeah we we had support um fairly early on actually in terms of our journey with them um and we you know found it quite useful just because you get you run into these points where you're kind of architecting something you've kind of made it work and you're like yeah, I'm not totally happy. You know, I've had to scale this way more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of go and chat to their, um, support engineers who are fantastic. Um, you know, really knowledgeable people and they'll, they'll give you some hints and tips about what you can change, maybe what you can kind of do to kind of get things going, especially as well. If you have like, we occasionally had a, we had a system where we were able to kill nodes quite easily at one point in our application, um, purely mm. because we, we were just throwing too much query load at it in one go. Um, and so we got some advice off of them to basically implement what they call coordinating nodes which is essentially nodes that aren't holding data but are responsible for taking a query right dispersing that to all of the other nodes that contain relevant data they they go off and collect it spin it back to the coordinating node and that then assembles the final result set and that then takes some pressure off your data nodes and and, and that kind of information you know you you can get there by reading the docs but just having someone on hand to kind of Ask a question that was really important.
0: Yeah, and so that right ro- sets you on the right path because you can put a lot of energy into an architecture, and then it's not working. You can't decide: have I taken this the wrong way, or am I just making an implementation mistake?
2: Exactly, yeah. and some of these things really only kind of surface, well, like in production at super scale. Um, so it's really yeah. nice
0: to to kind that of velocity. test
2: this stuff out and get some feedback. On top of pure support, the other stuff that you get by kind of moving up to the, the kind of paid levels is we have what we call XPAC, which is our kind of set of extensions that provide some additional monitoring, reporting, uh, machine learning, and, and many other capabilities that some people won't need out of the box. Hence, we don't, you know, chuck it into the free version and um, expect people are going to be using it in every application. But for those that really need to do something a little bit more advanced you know the machine learning side of it which i've got to get my head around at some stage uh, looks super cool mm-hmm. um and you know that's that's in there at those kind of um pay packages where you can kind of get some of these additional features if they apply to your business and what you're building as well
0: right now was xpack originally a closed source product that became open source like where where did, it, where did this come from
2: yeah so that originally um some years back i think was kind of it was hidden away. It was a kind of in a repo that no one else could look at. Um, and it, and mm-hmm. are, you know, very keen on kind of being uh, kind of open and free where they can. And so the source code of that was opened up so that people could kind of see how it worked, contribute to it um, if they wanted to, and, and put in feature requests, which is the, kind of the most important aspect, I think, is when this stuff is open, as we've seen with .NET, you get everyone from the community can kind of say, well, hold on, I'd like to do this. And it's a really good kind of uh, feature pipeline uh, coming into your product when that stuff's open uh, to people to kind of see how it works and, and see what they'd need. Um, so that is now open. Uh, you can kind of go and look at it. Um, and you can trial that for, I think, 30 days as well. If you've got a new uh, cluster that you spun up, you can you can turn that on for free and see if it gives you anything uh, that
0: you want to use. Yeah, I mean, and it's just an interesting, like, I think it's kind of an artifact of learning to make a business around open source too. Yeah, I think that's it. You know, that at one time it's like, I have an open source product and I, and I also have a closed source product and you can decide when you want to move between them, that kind of thing. And now bit by bit, we're kind of figuring out that, hey, you know, closed source closed source is never a good idea. There's other ways to make money.
2: Yeah, I think, the, I think the industry as a whole, probably in the last few years, I would say from my, my experience, is, is starting to come around to this, you know, how do open source libraries make themselves sustainable going forward. And I think Elastic is an example of a company that's done that really well um, and found a quite nice balance mm-hmm. between, you know, here's the code, here's what's free. And then here's the kind of the bolt on stuff that allows us to kind of grow and scale and, and continue investing in the, in the product. I think,
0: Yeah. Sustain as a business and as well as uh, a giving services that, that people want to pay for. Exactly. Yeah. Without without you know, without the crippleware effect, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, you made it work for free, but you're only going to get so far. Then you yeah. got to call us.
2: Yeah, that's that's just extremely infuriating for people, isn't it? Where you've got something that yeah, w- works for twenty uh, percent of the time, and then you know you try and scale it out, and it's it's no longer going to work for you.
0: Yeah, and it's like, I'm sorry, we're gatekeeping on that, <laughs> right? And it's just that's your your relationship with a company shouldn't be, damn it, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> Hey is there any kind
1: of uh monitoring and alerting mechanism built into ElasticSearch say I want to know when you know certain things happen or certain records uh, have particular values uh and just alert myself you know alert my code uh, There's certainly maybe a webhook Yeah
2: there's certainly stuff that you can set up in the Kibana side of things um I would I would probably have to defer answering on that until I've kind of played around with it a bit more to see how it would hook in, um, okay. but it's, it's definitely something you can set up in Kibana and it'd be nice if we could yeah, provide a mechanism to, you know, have a hook that then comes back in. I know there's there's stuff that's being worked on around that. Um, we have a bunch of, or we have a couple of things in the stack that kind of support just enabling this um, really easily. So we have um, log stash, which is something that you can install and run to basically ship any kind of log file. Uh, into Elasticsearch, which is quite convenient. So Mm. that handles things like, okay, how would I like to, you know, if you've got a random CSV file that's produced by some service, how do I interpret that data, decide which pieces I want to take in, how do I transform those, maybe do uh, IP to to geolocation, lookups, that kind of stuff. And then alongside that, we also have Beats, which is our kind of data shipper um, offering as well. So you can install that on servers and a number of applications to collect data about them as they're running and, and push that in. Um, and then that's all the kind of stuff okay. that you can then hook up in Kibana to get your, your dashboards and your monitoring over the top of.
0: You're getting to that place where it's like, there's enough different pieces here that people sort of sit back and go, ah, what do I
2: need? Yeah. It, right. It's always, I think that's always the challenge is, is too much choice, I guess. But um, I think the nice thing yeah. about this stack is you can kind of, you can start with, you know, I think our starting place was Elasticsearch, which was, in the, the company I previously worked for, we were initially just using for uh, searching across kind of data on the website. So our, our, our product mm-hmm. was a, a job board platform, software as a service. And so a key thing people want to do against that is search for jobs by you know title or um, by different price categories of what salary they're going to get. Um, that was kind of where our journey right. started. And then very quickly we realized, oh, hold on, we can we could easily search all of our logs using this. So we started pumping logs in um, with Logstash, and then we started going, okay, well, now we've got our logs in, we can search over them, but wouldn't it be nice if we could have dashboards? Oh, okay, we've got Kibana, that we can sit alongside this and start building it up. So I think that you, you can kind of take the slow onboarding ramp if you want to, um, or you can kind of just start drinking from the fire hose of, of tech if, you, if you've got those requirements
0: as well. Well, one of the things I've seen, folks talk about in the context of Elasticsearch is it was a lot easier to build this caching searching tool across multiple data stores than it was to try and build the low level, you know, mother of all data stores, right? The, the data warehouse approach where we consolidated data from all these different places, and then you got to get to go search. And so you had that you created this huge mountain you needed to climb. And then Elasticsearch sort of bypassed that all and said, hey, we're not going to hold all your data. Just figure out what you want to search on no matter where it is. And then you can search on it.
2: That's it. Yeah. I think, I think we're kind of, as we move more towards microservices and domain driven design, that kind of stuff, I think people are getting more used to the fact that you'll use data stores for different things that they're best suited for. And you won't necessarily store the same yeah. shape of data. You'll just short store the piece that's applicable to, okay, I've got a blog and I want to full text search over it. So I have the title and the body and a few categories that I store in the search engine side. And then maybe for, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, other Parts of the database that you, you want to maintain in a more relational way, you, you, you keep that over somewhere else and you have another service that manages
0: that. Um, I think that works quite nicely. Yeah. And the fact that you have multiple parts of your company running each of their own databases is not a sin. Right, That's okay. They all made their thing their way for their reason. The fact that we can aggregate it independently of them. And not, you know, force them down some particular path. Life is easier. We've got enough compute. Maybe that's the change. We have lots of storage we have lots of compute. We could afford to keep things in different locations and consolidate them. Yeah, when exactly. we need I
1: think you brought it up before, Richard. Uh, Gmail. Who who expected Gmail to become the largest database that I manage? You know, my my messages. I I don't know about yeah. you, but I, my inbox. I never delete anything. I'm afraid I won't be able. <laughs> box of Doom. Yeah, I'm afraid I won't be able to access something that happened, you know, years ago when I need to know what that was. Yeah,
0: that is people's reflex, without a doubt.
2: We're 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 definitely at that point, I think, in the industry where there's there's so much information everywhere. You've got it in Slack, you've got it in email, you've got it in wikis, um, and those can be real challenges. And while I, w- I don't work on that side of it directly, we have uh, Elastic. We have a product called Enterprise Search that's kind of geared towards exactly that problem, where you you pointed hmm. at all your data sources, all of these things like Salesforce and whatever else that you're using, and it can it can start ingesting that information um, and then give you kind of a, a centralized search point in your company over all of that data that you maintain. And that's quite a, a powerful way of dealing with that kind of data explosion problem that I think we're
0: all having now Of the stuff everywhere. You know, there's, there's yeah. good information across all of the things I use daily. Well, and it's not going to come from any one big vendor because that big vendor is always going to preferentialize their data sources. It needs to come from a search specialist that that is agnostic to the sourcing.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I think you know that's. I think the advantage that we have is, yeah, we're not we're not trying to sell the things that create the data. We're just trying to make search a really right um, powerful and and fun experience. I think for people, you know, we want you to be able to plug this in. Uh, into your applications to to power those with search, but also to kind of make search across your enterprises um,
0: easier. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, from that, I'm thinking in that context of as a, someone who's who's enter- architecting for an enterprise to say, uh, yeah, you know, we're gonna we're gonna rely on search engines that are agnostic to sourcing, because just because and I'm not saying that anybody's doing anything wrong, it's like. That way, they're sort of kind of equal equal yeah. opportunity then. We should be able to take data from anywhere and index mm. it. And we don't need to do it in advance, right? All of that old uh, data ingestion, you know, uh, transformation tooling comes from a time when we had limited amount of storage and we were trying to make consolidated sources so we could search them quickly. I just don't think we have that problem anymore. You you, you just scale out your search.
2: Yeah. That's the whole reason I think we've kind of started to realize that relational databases aren't the one and only solution you need just because it you yeah. know reduces your, you know, your normalized data structures, reduced you know, size on disk, um, which still has its places. But a lot of the time when you've, you've got, you're dealing with documents at a more realistic level in your code already. And so now you can just index those straight in, um, you know, with Elasticsearch on that, you just, you know. Pass it the uh, the object that represents whatever you want to index, and and um, we'll pass it in for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and wherever that source may be, right? It not Again, you don't have to ram the square peg of your data into a round hole. Just look at it as a square peg. Like you've got some documents, you've got some blogs. If those that's fine. Yeah. Index it all. Uh, do you find like where are the hard parts in Elasticsearch? Like, what is the struggle for indexing certain kinds of data? They're harder things to analyze than others.
2: I think the two areas I see people struggle with the most, or wrap their heads around, is is getting a getting their head around the the DSL for how you query is a bit of a challenge because yeah, you, right. you've got so many options about how you actually are going to query this data. Um, you know, particularly as you start to get into full text search, you need to start thinking about. You know, what kind of language analysis might be happening on there? Which kind of stop words you don't care about? Um, what kind of normalization of that data do you want? Do you want it case sensitive? Do you not? Um, and then you, you start to build up these quite complex queries that say, well, see if it's in here, but rank that higher because it's a title. If not, see if it's in the body, but give it a slightly lower ranking. Um, and then, you know, you know, if you think of your typical website search, you'll, you'll have a, keyword search, and then most you know shops now will have all of those kind of dials on the left that you can say, oh, okay, I want it in red, and I want it to be, you know, no more than $200. Um, all of that kind of information needs to kind of get filtered into the search that you're performing. Um, mm-hmm. And so mapping that into the DSL can be a challenge at first until you kind of grasp kind of what that looks like. Um, I see people struggle with that. And then I, I also see people struggle once they've learned that to, to translate that into the .NET sort of fluent syntax that we have and as I say we've tried to keep it pretty close so that you're not you know if you squint a bit it looks fairly similar but you're obviously not in json anymore you're in kind of dot typed code um and that's right. one of the f- totally
1: we're not in json anymore <laughs> i don't think we're in json anymore
0: sorry but it, it does sound like over time, you're going to build up a body of knowledge about your data that Elasticsearch depends on and gets better at querying around.
2: Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think over time, you, you understand the data that you have. And I think the key thing is really most of this time, you want to store the data now, just chuck it into something, um, store that data, yeah. and then start to understand, you know, how can that be used to power the business? And whether that's uh, typical search or machine learning that you can then do over the top of it as you start to ingest this stuff over time. Mm-hmm. And that's all stuff that you can kind of figure out a bit later on. Um, Elasticsearch, as I say, has this concept of how you map the data to determine what fields on that data look like. But you can always, at a later time, right. put in a new mapping against the new index and then re-index that content that you've already collected into a more suitable form for a new search experience or new aggregation experience that you want to provide. Um,
0: yeah. A new filter you didn't have before, right? Like I think about later, you talk about your initial constructs where you're searching across maybe multiple data stores. And so you've got to figure out the relationship of the customer, or the name, those sort of classic glossary terms. And I like your description of like, then then you've got filter criteria, only the red ones, like that kind of thing. But then you add in something subtle, like sentiment analysis. You know, it should look, an interesting tool, right? And once you have sentiment analysis, but the fact that it would just appear as a filter—that yeah. just that would just be a new filter that would it would operate within the system. And and you know, that's kind of fun for the folks that are trying to find opportunities in the in the company's data. And It's like one day a new filter appeared, and it was amazing.
1: Huh. What what happens if you want to use Elasticsearch? Maybe people are doing this, maybe they're not. But starting with you know, I've got some relational data in a in a SQL server. And so, the first thing I need to do is turn that into just blobs, documents. And you can do that with the right queries and all that stuff. Uh, are people doing that, ingesting data that starts off relational and turning that into, you know, taking the first step of making it doc- document-centric, right? And then the second step of ingesting it and expecting to have the same sort of fidelity of search and retrieval, that they're used to uh, being very specific about what they want in a SQL search, for example.
2: I I don't know of specifics, but I'm I'm sure it's going on. I mean, I know in our again in my previous role, we had a historical system where all of that uh, searching for like jobs was done in SQL at the time, uh, MS SQL, and then we realised well actually that's we you know we're having to beef up these SQL servers to handle this, and we're still not really getting the results that really matter. Um, and so at yeah. that time, it was just an exercise of, okay, well, we'll have a, a scraping utility, a .NET scraping utility that's querying out of SQL Server, transforming it into an object, and then index that, right. bulk index that back into Elasticsearch. And at that stage, we were able to then play around with that data a bit more and say, okay, well, now what does a, a full-text search over this return? Oh, okay, these results are actually far more relevant to, to what the person was probably looking for because it's, it's doing all of that, uh, um, as I say, kind of text analysis and tokenization of kind of words that you're probably more interested in from the body of the text that you're actually
1: searching. Yeah, yeah, it is a challenge, and you know, is is it appropriate? I guess is what the question is. Is there are there people that are doing that just because of the cost savings or the uh, you know the, the the they want the cloud infrastructure that they might not have? Maybe you've got an on prem thing. I mean, do you? Do you deal with customers that have those problems? I'm sure our um, consulting side of the business
2: do. Um, yeah, I think it's a very common thing yeah. that people are trying to decide if what they've got today is the right thing, um, and if it isn't the right, right thing, what is mm-hmm. the right thing that they should be moving to? Um, and and that might be elastic. Um, it might be you know other document databases that are geared towards other things. It might be more column based, like Cassandra, that kind of stuff. But um, I think that key thing is is kind of doing that initial analysis of. Not necessarily what the data is, but what are your actual requirements from that data? What do you need to get out of it? Right. Um, and then you want to form it and structure it and store it wherever is applicable. It's a constant challenge.
0: It's the world we live in. Yep. Yeah. And it's and and, you know, sort of that reality of, you know, you've got some people with SQL skills here. So they keep trying to ram the text search and, and document exploration through SQL's contacts. And you get some results, but never quite where you want to go. Like, are you, are you doing this the hard way? And it's not like a sign pops out of the machine. It's like, you are on the wrong path. You, you, you know, you got something working. You're trying to get more working. I've got to imagine it's quite a breath of fresh air when you get your head around and Some of that hard stuff just becomes trivial.
2: Yeah, I think it was for us. I think that was that was one of the kind of epiphanies is once we understood how to get it in and how to query it, Actually, the results coming out from day one were better than what we we hadn't had to tune it in any way. We just used the auto analysis and the auto configuration of most things. And it was just giving us better results. And after that, you can start saying, OK, well, maybe this this particular field, if matched on there, it, it should be boosted up. It should be ranked higher in search results. Um, and that could be as simple as, you know, someone's paid for a premium listing on a job board. Should those results then bubble up higher because they're marked premium? Um, that th- those kind of flags can easily be enabled as well in terms of results, which is something you could do with SQL,
0: but there's a lot of code to writing that boost algorithm. Yeah. Why write it if it already exists in its other tool?
2: I think I remember sort of having a chat to the DBA at the time, and I, I, I you know, I think these kind of databases do scare DBAs a bit because it's like all oh, taking stuff out of your SQL database. Um, but they were very yeah. good at kind of going, okay, well, give me the query, and I'll run in the query analyzer, and I'll figure out how to make it faster. And you can do that, but do you want to be doing that? Or would you rather just store it in something that knows how full-text search works, uh, kind of mm. and is designed for that job, and can just do it out of the box, um, kind of a click of a button? That
0: does seem like that's the entry drug, is we need to do <laughs> full-text search. And here's a, here's a set of tools. Right. And then you, then the other stuff emerges with with value.
1: And then before you know it, everything's migrated to Elastic Cloud.
2: <laughs> that's that's the way. That's the way forward.
1: <laughs> that's the way. That's right. Uh, Steve, what's next for you? What's on your radar?
2: Um so I've got uh, a little bit more around. We're pre- preparing for the seven eleven release of Elasticsearch, which should be in the next day or two as we record. So bit of prep for that um and then from my side of things i've i've started live streaming which is a kind of crazy scary experience of coding in front of people uh so i'm having a right. go at doing some live streaming around you know what, what we're building out in the client prototyping uh, performance optimizations that kind of stuff uh so that, that'll be on my my twitch channel I'm, I'm just steve j gordon over there and then that will sort of syndicate over to my youtube channel which is code with steve up on youtube Um, And I want to put some more content out, I think, about kind of Elasticsearch.net, how you get started, that kind of thing. Very good.
1: Well, uh, keep us informed. If anything uh, happens that our listeners want to know about, let us know. We'll have you back on. Will do. Will do. All right. Thanks again, Steve. And thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.